to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about business and analytics, communications, media, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, sitting solo at the Sloan MIT Conference, uh, and I'm pleased to be joined by a Hall of Famer, Frank Brown, longtime head of communications at the NHL, now working at the XFL, helping them out on some consulting stuff. Frank, welcome to The Cusp Show. Thanks. What a, what a treat to be here. And literally, we were just walking down the hall, and I said, what are you doing? And here it is. So um, let's talk a little bit. I mean, can you just kind of run through the career that you had from the Daily News and how you got to the NHL and uh, really how the business of communications has kind of changed since you've been there? For people who may not know, the Daily News is a newspaper which still exists in New York City, too. Uh, where to start? Yeah. First off... Uh, I started at Associated Press in 1970. Wow. I was hired as a, as a copy boy. And I'm sure for your audience. <laughs> I tried to explain copy. sports front to somebody once. It didn't work. So. <laughs> there were things known as teletype printers mm-hmm. in, the, in the 60s and 70s and, and decades later. That required that used rolls of paper, rather like the rolls of paper towels yep. in restrooms or uh, any place else. That had to be changed, and the news of the world came to all of the newsrooms in the world through teletypes. Uh, long story short, when I was hired, I told them I would do all the grunt work and uh, and. Uh, go for all the coffee and hamburgers that the staffers wanted if, when I graduated college, I went to Hunter, mm-hmm. uh, if I got a chance, to, if I would get a chance to go on staff, get a tryout. That's all I wanted. Mm-hmm. And they figured that I would wash out long before they would have to be paying off that... Teletype. That, that yeah. debt. Yeah. Uh, but I stayed with it. And they uh, stayed true to their work. 1973, I graduated. I was 21 years old, and I was the, probably one of the youngest New York sports staffers in, in AP history. Wow. Um, got my three-month tryout, passed it. And through it all, I had been uh, gaining really a, an incredible degree, not so much at Hunter, where I where mm-hmm. I got an English and communications degree, but life degree. But the the learning how to be a professional journalist degree mm-hmm. that I was that I was gaining on a daily basis was uh, was just incredible. Uh, particularly learning from AP style, which was very much just the facts, you know, very much uh, devoid of analysis because at the time when you're serving 1500 newspapers around the world only the facts matter so in many cases the stories that are created under the AP uh, heading are dictated Mm -hmm. off the top of your head so you learn you learn how to structure uh, thoughts in your mind. I wish I still could. Mm. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> um, I can tell you the stats of the 1976 New York Mets. I can't tell you what I had for lunch yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. 
you learn a, a structure that's that's very meaningful, very important, and, and will carry through so many of the things that you do. You learn how to handle yourself as a professional. You learn how to ask the right questions. And uh, so in 1973, when I graduated from Hunter, they put me on staff. Not that many years later, uh, Hal Bach, who had been the hockey writer, uh, became a general columnist. Mm -hmm. I had always loved hockey. Uh, from the minute I watched my first game at, at the old Madison Square Garden on mm -hmm. 50th Street. And uh, so that led to uh, my ascension to national hockey writer for AP. Covered the miracle at Lake Placid. Wow. 40 years ago. 40 years ago. And uh, that led to uh, that led to the the incredible moment in the press room at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I was covering the Flyers and Islanders in the 1980 final. Gentleman walked up to me in the press room, introduced himself and said, Hi, I'm Buddy Martin. I'm the sports editor of the Daily News and I'm going to hire you. Wow. And I've already talked to your boss. And so uh, I said, when do I start? So, take a step back for a second. So you were you were you were in Lake Placid. You actually covered. You see, I you covered the, the hockey. AP? I covered the hockey for the Associated Press. That's unbelievable. I had no idea. I'd never heard that story before. Did you have any sense for what was going on while it was happening? No. 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 And anybody who did is probably making it up. Yeah. Here's what I can tell you, though. Throughout the tournament. The thing that stood out to me was how really poorly the Russian team was playing. Hmm. In their first game, they beat Japan 16 to nothing and looked bad doing it. Hmm. There were <clears throat> a number of instances when <sighs> the style that they played, very focused on the first five minutes of the period, very focused on the last five minutes of the period. So they would literally just turn up to the next level. Mm -hmm. Okay. They, they could play pedestrian hockey because all their opposition was pedestrian. Right. When they needed a goal, they pretty much knew they could score one. And they did that in a number of games. As the tournament progressed, the competition got closer and closer. And in fact, Canada had them. Mm -hmm. Canada was ahead of them entering the third period. But then the, the Soviet Union team at the mm -hmm, time right. uh, had one of those periods and won. Mm -hmm. So they were vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Okay, but their vulnerable compared to everyone else's level was still several notches higher. What Herb Brooks had done through the 60 games of preparation was get his team in shape. His one of his favorite expressions was the legs feed the wolf. Love that. He knew they were likely to lose. If they played them, if they played the Soviet team ten times, they would likely lose nine. Right. They weren't going to lose because they couldn't skate with the best skating team in the world. 
So he wanted that to be equivalent. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you rush into a confluence of the U.S. team, the, the greatest barrier okay, to victory was awe. Mm -hmm. Week before the Olympics began, and to his credit, I, I'm sure he had this, this strategically planned. U.S. team played. In Madison Square Garden. In Madison Square Garden. I was at the game. Against, yeah. I, I was as well. Yeah. Played against the team they were about to face mm -hmm. at the Olympics. Got their heads handed to them. 10-3 or 10 10 to 3 10 to 3 However, it got their sense of, obviously it got the sense of how commanding the Russians were, the Soviets were, front and center in a way that it couldn't have been presented by a meeting or a, a film review or something of that nature. Right. So that, that threshold was crossed in New York. Yep. Properly humbled and properly respectful of exactly what would have to happen. Yep. They came to Lake Placid with an entirely reconfigured mindset that helped them a tremendous amount. That being said, they needed a goal with 27 seconds left in the first game yep. by Bill Baker to at least get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. And then as, as the machine began to perform more easily, the rest of the story wrote itself. There you go. So back on track now, now that we've taken a, a curve. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. No, no, that's, that's unbelievably fascinating. Um, and, and just as a side note, I was with uh, Gavin O'Connor. I worked on this uh, Ben Affleck film way back that's come out recently. And he talked about, you know, we actually talked, I was with him the day of the, the, the 40th anniversary of the game. And he told stories about Herb Brooks. The most interesting one that he said, you know, that not a lot of people realize was he said that Herb maintained that uh, he and Craig Patrick had a lineup that they wrote before everything started with the players. And it was the lineup that it never changed. He never told anybody. But I guess the USOC told him you had to stretch this out for whatever reason. But the lineup, the, the, the players that he had at the beginning were the players that actually made the team, which yeah. was pretty amazing. I'm not surprised so, yeah. because, because Herb knew mm -hmm. up, down, in and out. Yeah. Every element of every player, every strength, every week. The legs feed the wolf. I will give you one more yep. anecdote, and I guess then we have to stop. But move on. Mark Johnson yep. tied the game two-two at with one second left in the first period. Off a crazy bounce, right? Crazy bounce, bounce, but right. a crazy rebound because Trechak didn't like long shots. Mm -hmm. He never handled them particularly well. So he took it off his pads, and Mark scored with one second left. Everybody thought the period was over. Everybody went to the dressing room. Referee goes, no, we have to have a face-off. Okay. Teams come back onto the ice, and there's a new goalie in the Soviet net. Michigan, he puts Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. When you don't trust the greatest goalie in the world with one second yeah. of play, with the face-off at center ice, something yeah, peculiar yeah. is going on. Yeah. Interesting. The little things that you notice, and that's obviously 
and I want to talk a little bit about listening and, and, and observing because that's something that you've obviously done, you know, throughout your career, which is really important. So you hear from the Daily News, uh, you go there. How long are you at the Daily News? I'm at the News from 1980 right. to 1998. Right. So in addition to an American hockey enthusiast covering the greatest Olympic championship, with all due respect to 1960, mm -hmm. the greatest Olympic hockey championship I could, in, could do in my lifetime. Right. What happens in 1994? <laughs> I cover the Rangers Stanley Cup. Yeah. Okay. And that remember, happened, actually, for people. Most people listening to this probably won't know that that actually happened. So. Remember, as someone who grew up in the 60s, there, there only was one New York team. Right. Growing up as a New York boy, mm -hmm. there was only one option here. Right. So as a recovering Ranger fan. And having I, lived through four Islander Stanley Cups. Yeah, yeah. having covered them all. Yeah. Um, to cover the 1980 miracle and then to cover the 1994 Stanley Cup. Okay, these are two things. These are two life highlights mm -hmm. that are that that would boggle the mind individually and do, and still do. Yep. To be able to say that I did them, did both of them, and then spent 20 years at the National Hockey League. That's pretty cool. So two careers, yeah. okay, either one of which would have been amazing. How blessed am I? Yeah. Did you, um, just as a side note, I, I tell people this all the time, especially younger people, to be in the moment and to take a mental picture of what's going on as it's happening because you forget sometimes when, you know, when these things are happening that you're actually, you know, like it says in the musical Hamilton, you're in the room where it happens. And... You just kind of look around and you say, "What am I doing here?" You know. Um, do you have vivid? Do you have memories of like Lake Placid or some other events that you were covering to sit there and just kind of look around and say, "Holy crap! What what is happening here right now?" Less less in the in the moment and more retrospectively. After, re, yeah, yeah, much more retrospectively. In other words, when. The flag was was being raised to the field house ceiling. Mm -hmm. I screamed the national anthem. I could not. That's beautiful. I couldn't help yeah. myself. Okay, so so that was my moment. Okay, where I completely threw away any professional credibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> didn't care. Right. Didn't care. That was a moment in time, in politics, in 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 world history. Yep. I couldn't help myself. Okay. I get chills thinking about it. I make no yeah. apology. Yeah. 5.27 p.m., mm -hmm. Lake Placid Mania time. Mm -hmm. That's pretty funny. And it was, that, was the, that was the start of my yep. ceremony story, and I know it only because it, as I was getting ready for Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. okay, which is another thing. We'll talk about that, too. That so. you can't even imagine right. is going to happen. Yeah. Okay, so then if you combine the 80 games with the 94 Stanley Cup, <laughs> with 20 years at the league, yep. and then a plaque. Pretty cool. And here you are still going. We'll talk about the XFL, too. So. <laughs> so you cover all those games, um, and there have been other people, like Arthur Pincus made that transition to the, the New York Times. Um, how did that transition come about and to go from working as, as a as – a, person on the media side to going to work for the NHL and what was that like for you? 
the the time, the late '90s, really was the start of the the evolution in the media, and you could you could term it the the confluence of television and journalism in sports. I'm I'm saying. Mm-hmm where there were more and more sports writers on television, more media outlets such as ESPN, more more pervasive talk shows, you know, 24-hour radio and so forth. And what this did was th- this was the, the beginning of the era that's so fascinating in terms of the history of sports communications. The reason being, back in our youth, mm-hmm. Joe, let's say we met on the subway to Yankee Stadium, and I was sitting in section 12, and you were sitting in section 40, okay? If we wanted to marvel at a play that Roger Maris just made, okay, we would have to either run in the stands and meet up with each other, discuss it on the subway going home, or call each other with a rotary dial phone. With a rotary dial phone that had a hard wire connected to it. Mm-hmm. That was the closest we were going to come to an to a text message. Yep. That was our text message, talking about it on the subway going back to our homes. Mm-hmm. So, we had our opinions then. And everybody in the ballpark with us had our opinions then. The ability to express it real time, mm-hmm. to nudge the person next to you uh, in, in the figurative sense, in the way that we now do that in the digital sense, these were all the things that were beginning to take place. Sports media communications was becoming more dictated by the fans. And as a result of that, and as a result of the immediacy of 24-hour sports, sports coverage became much more analysis, much more opinion than just the facts, which had been my life Mm -hmm. at Associated Press. I wasn't comfortable with it. I wasn't comfortable with going on television and giving my thoughts when I was being paid to give them to my readers mm-hmm. at the news. Right. I felt conflicted. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I save? What do I say? But what do I save? And am I being fair to my employer? Am I being fair to my reader? So while many people were able to do it, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And... A time came when my ability to just keep my intensity, keep my focus, what I wanted it to be at the level that I always expected it to remain, was beginning to subside. Part of it because what else are you going to cover? If you've already covered the 80 Olympics, if you've already covered four Stanley Cups by the Islanders, the Rangers Stanley Cup, subsequent Stanley Cups by the a subsequent Stanley Cup by the Devils, there wasn't a whole lot left for a hockey writer at that time. Mm -hmm. 
So when the National Hockey League called, they were beginning to feel that they needed a change to respond to exactly the, the moment in communications history that they were about to face. Right. I, I saw a synergy there. They saw a synergy in, in, in my vision for it, and it worked out. So you're there 20 years. Yeah. Um, what were the principal duties when you got there, and what were the principal duties when you left? The principal duties at the time, okay, and, and this, is, this is the positioning of the National Hockey League in the late 90s. Right. Okay. Uh, Gary Bettman had been uh, brought aboard in 93 at a time when the, the media rights element of things was completely random relative to the National Hockey League. There was, there was no focus to be, that, that, that could be identified. There was no real understanding of the business to the level of sophistication that was required. There was no, there was no real marketing to the extent that it exists now, mm-hmm. to the to the extent that that people who are listening to this would would expect. Right. It was covered wagons, basically, and a giant frontier. Because of that, and because print really still dominated, print mm-hmm. was a very very dominant force at that time the it was beginning to wane but the focus was to get more stories to get better stories okay to make up for the lack of television coverage in particular the national television coverage right who who was the rights holder then was it ESPN gosh was it USA? Uh, or I want to say it was Sports Channel. I want yeah. it was yeah. it was just at the yeah. it was just in those sort of Sports Channel days. Yep. yep. And so, you know, Gary, to his enduring credit, started moving toward national packages, regardless of regardless of what the what the rice fees were. It had to happen. He knew it had to happen. And NHL.com had to happen, and he knew it had to happen. If the papers weren't going to cover the league, the league had to cover itself. Yep. And was it? It was the. Was it when when Ted bought the Capitals? They were one of the first sites to say we're going to go and do all this news stuff. Correct. It was like them and San Jose and a couple of others they, that said we wanted there, to do this. There were people who yeah. saw the future. Right. However. The, the capitals then, mm-hmm. compared to the capitals now, and, and I remember this very, very, very vividly when there were 8,000 people in the building. Yeah, in the other building, Landover. No, well, no, in, no. In this building. No, in, in, right. in the current bank one, yeah. whatever, whatever it's called, the, mm-hmm. the venue where they play now. Yeah. And I remember news conferences where Leontis would have to sit mm-hmm. in front of a crowd with Gary at his side and say, this is a tough period, but we're going to come through it, hmm. okay? We're going to be one of the foremost teams in the National Hockey League. Just stick with us. Yep. It's going to take time. And over 20 years at Gary's side, because that's what my job evolved into, mm-hmm. uh, much more uh, 
commissioner communication related than media related right. necessarily. I stood next to him in city after city after city at Chamber of Commerce luncheons, breakfasts, when fans would say, are we going to lose our team? Mm. And he would say, no. The league is confident. And we will do everything we can to keep you there. And this is, and this is Canadian markets. Yep. This is Southern markets. This is, this is markets large and small. And uh, so my enduring memory of those years, other mm -hmm. than the, you know, writing the fateful words that we were going to lose yeah, one of them to, to uh, uh, collective bargaining was the unrelenting support in the cities that struggled, the cities that now flourish, mm -hmm. that Gary gave them. And then, um, so talk a little bit about the relationship and how Gary Bettman has really become much more, I don't say media savvy, but media comfortable, um, great at delivering messages, but the, the the relationship with NBC obviously helped because people who are listening to this may not realize, but you know, leagues now talk, the UFC talks about digital first, National Lacrosse League talks about digital first, Major League Soccer talks about digital first. But hockey and the NHL were really the first ones to say, we gotta go tell our own story and we need a partner to do that. Um, was that easy to accept? Like when, when did, did the teams come back and say, what the hell are you doing? We can't really do this. Or did everybody buy in? Because Gary was the one who was leading the way. They properly the clubs properly trusted his vision mm -hmm. the clubs knew every club owner looks over at the other guys and mm -hmm. sees what they're getting you can you can rest assured mm -hmm. um, and they want it how come we're not on network TV how come we're not on blank how come we're not doing this that that or the other thing um, so they depended on him to pull together things, and there were evolutions. Okay, ESPN at the time that we were that 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 we had whatever we had with them, they were still finding their way relative to programming. We were just happy to be on. Uh, you know, it, it, the the games migrated from <clears throat> broadcaster to broadcaster, and now finally, the big hit was. Um, at the time, it was the out, outdoor network. Okay, mm -hmm. when we when wow. we when we came out of the work stoppage, mm -hmm. okay, and and the the offer from ESPN was so insulting that that Gary said, and it's 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 not a secret story anymore. I'd rather not be on anywhere mm -hmm. than be insulted than than accept an insulting offer. Ultimately, coming out of the the work stoppage, OLN. Got the rights. Mm -hmm. OLN <laughs> ended up getting swallowed by the NBC fish, right. and here we are. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> if there's a lesson in that, it's it's that get your foot in the door. Okay, at some point it will open wider. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's what happened. Uh, before we leave your longtime career and the evolution of the NHL, um, obviously I would say the Winter Classic is probably another... Ten pole event that has become much more 
how did that come about? And, and what was that like when people said, we want to go play an outdoor game? <clears throat> Remember, Joe, that in 2003, I want to say, Edmonton did one as right. something of a one-off. It mm -hmm. was a great you know, Canadian moment, and it was incredibly cold mm -hmm. at uh, Common Commonwealth Stadium. And sold out. It was a it was a great hockey moment, mm -hmm. and no one ever really saw that this could be something more than that. They said, "Yeah, great. Let's. What happens?" Everybody went back to the drawing board. As as this was in progress, New Year's Day became less and less and less dominated by, my recollection was it was always the Orange Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, and the Rose Bowl. Yep. Okay, that was the sequence. Yep. Okay, so that there could be a cascade of, of really important bowl games on New Year's Day. That started to move around, okay? So maybe it wasn't New Year's Day or maybe it was a, there was a night game or something like that. But New Year's Day became a vacant place that needed filling for people who may have had too much to mm. party the night before. So NBC had an idea. John Collins, who was at, uh, at the league at the time, loved it. Mm -hmm. And everybody coalesced around it said, let's take a chance in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Buffalo raised its hand to <clears throat> to host it. And it snowed. <laughs> it snowed Just lightly. Enough. Yeah. Okay? I will tell you that there you may recall there were problems with the with the way the the ice was prepared. There were there were any number of stoppages because the science of making ice in a stadium had not reached the level that it did yeah. through through the number of learnings mm -hmm. that you gain as you as you do it more and more. Mm -hmm. In my view, the most important goal in the history of modern hockey mm -hmm. was Sidney Crosby in that shootout. Okay? Game went to overtime. If it had been any other random penguin, it would have been, yeah, okay. But the, the shot of him going, yeah, with mm. snowflakes, yep. falling on his helmet and gloves in celebration, cinched it for me. Right. We get out of the car at, at the uh, at Rich, Rich Stadium at the time, see tailgating going on, people... Loving it, okay? People just organically already responding to it before the game. Mm -hmm. And it just continued and continued. So light snow was great. If, if, it had been, if it had been Soldier Field snow like we had for another outdoor game, it would, mm -hmm. been, it would have been a problem. Everything worked out great. Which is great. And, you know, being in the moment and being there when it happens is important and making sure that you maximize it. Um, so you're there 20 years. You decide to leave um, towards the end of that you get a uh, kind of a call from 
this building in Toronto saying, you know, we would like you to come and join our Hall of Fame. Uh, talk a little bit about that, what that was like. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now on the consulting side, especially with, you know, another crazy startup, the XFL. So I had passed my 65th year. Mm -hmm. And let's remember the number of trips, the number of hotels, the number of nights away. Um, and, you know, the passage of time is, you know. You don't get it back. You don't get it back. Yeah. So I had reached a point, again, having, having been able to, to be part of the moments I've been a part of, there, there is, there's not so much a feeling of been there, done that as, as what possibly could be left. Mm -hmm. The answer is living life. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are any number of times, I can't tell you how many times, okay, when my wife would sit across from me at a, at a dinner table while I was writing a statement of policy. Yep drafting a statement of policy between mouthfuls of grouper mm -hmm. at a motel in Florida. Okay. It was time for those dinners <laughs> to be uninterrupted. No, I get it. I get and it. uninterrupted. Yeah. Okay. Which most people will find bizarre listening to this, that you actually could sit there without a phone and actually have a conversation. <laughs> well, that, that was the objective every time we sat down. Yeah. But every time somebody, some, some Hall of Famer passed away, mm -hmm. Okay, it, it was time to jump into action. Mm -hmm. So it was time to retire. It was time to live. Everybody, it, life is usually a progression of one, two, three, four, five. You go to college, you learn life skills, you learn social uh you, you make social connections, you learn what your aptitude is, you pursue your aptitude to into business, into communications, into whatever it is that your career will become. You have your career and then you move on. My sequence was one, three, five, mm -hmm. I never did two. I never, because, because all I did was focus on hockey, focus on communications, focus on writing. That's all I did. I, I still don't know things that any 15-year-old knows now about handling finances, about buying major, you know, buying an apartment or something like mm -hmm. that. It's so funny. You talk about it very similarly to the way athletes talk about their lives, which is pretty interesting to see that on the business side that that, that it's very true, though. It's true for me. Yeah, I, I can't. It's true for I, most people. I, I, think I wouldn't speak. What they do. I wouldn't so. speak for anyone else. Right. So, and sadly, watching going to too many funerals mm -hmm. made it clear to me that I have lots of catching up to do. Yep. I have grandchildren. Okay. And it was time for me to be present in their lives. It was time for me to be a, a present husband, 
-hmm. okay, a present father, a present and engaged parent after after being married to my career mm -hmm. for more than 50 years. Yep. So we left New York. We moved up to the Boston area, which is where our kids are, so we could be closer to the, mm -hmm. to, the to the family. And I'm sitting in in our new apartment. The phone rings, and I I see it's a it's a seven eight zero area code or four eight zero. In any event, a little peculiar because because that that was Edmonton and. Um, why would somebody from Edmonton be called on a retired guy? I figured it was mm -hmm. it was a media person who didn't know that I'd left or right. something of that nature. So for some reason, I answered the phone. And it was Mark Spector, president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. Hi, Mark. What's going on? Um, it was March 31st. And do you know the day that follows... March 31st. Full day. So he said, well, I'm calling because there is a lot of my role with the pro hockey writers that I don't particularly care for, but this is one that I really do. Hmm. I'm delighted to tell you You had that no idea, right? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm delighted to tell you that uh, you have been named the honoree of the Elmer Ferguson Award for 2019. Amazing. So, my, you know the emoji where the top of your head is, is flying off mm -hmm. and, and bits of brain matter are, are, are splattering mm -hmm. on the screen. I literally had a vision of, of a hockey heaven, okay, Clouds, mm -hmm. Gordy Howe, Stan Makita, all so many of the legends that I had covered. Standing there, but smiling mm -hmm. and waving me toward them. I went, okay, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. But it was happening. It was true. And then I thought about, you know, the... This, just the army of great hockey writers who I had collaborated with, who through the years I had interacted with in the press box on the side of these mm. legends, right, waving me forward. And to, you know, think about Red Fisher who is the icon, he's the Gordie Howe, for mm -hmm. sure, of, uh, of hockey writers in my view. To think that I would be in a place next to him and so many of the others is overwhelming. It remains overwhelming. It will always... Surreal. Uh, yeah, but mm -hmm. what, what aspects of my career haven't been? Yeah. So, you know... A career with AP. Okay, great. You've made it. Okay? New York kid. Mm -hmm. You've made it. Okay? To write for, brace yourself, a newspaper that sold more than a million and a half copies every day, more than two and a half million on Sunday. 
okay, to be the hockey voice. In a in, hockey town. In a hockey town, in that publication. Yep. Okay, that's two. Mm -hmm. To spend 20 years at the side of the most powerful man in the game. That's three. Mm -hmm. And to have my, my number retired. Yep. That's four. What I liked, the, the analogy I liked to use was, when I was a reporter, I was always, I was reporting on the blemishes on the face of the game. When I got a chance to work for the league, I saw the people who hold the heart of the game in their hands. Big difference. Mm -hmm. Amazing to do one, remarkable to be able to see the other side. Yep, for sure. Um, so you're now in, you've had this, re and we'll talk about reinvention at the end, which we've done a tremendous job of. Now you move on and you're doing some consulting projects, and lo and behold, you get a call from the startup league in Connecticut. Stanford. Um, the XFL. And what um, this latest chapter, what has it been like? How did you draw from other parts of your career to what you're doing now? Because obviously you're consulting, and there are other people, Steph Rudnick and other people are there full time. Mm -hmm. um, what has that been like to, to get a look into a startup, which really you haven't really been part of a startup, although many of your jobs were startups that had been reinvented 30 years later. So, so what was it, what's that like? The, the fascinating thing, number one, is keeping it in the family, mm -hmm. okay? Because as you know, <laughs> the president of the XFL is Jeffrey Pollock. He's Gary's half-brother. Gary's half-brother, right? right? So, so having worked for Gary mm -hmm. and, and, and having an innate understanding of... CEO brain set. The family brain set, too. The family brain set. Um, that helped. Yep. <clears throat> As was the case when Gary hired me, there was a, 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 a real uh, reliance on the relationships that I had at the time in the, in the hockey industry. Mm -hmm and a reliance now on the relationships that I have in the communications industry. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the experience that I have over five decades of, of transition through a, a communications world where that, that began with carbon paper. Okay, kids look it up, go Google. Mm -hmm. and, and is now in, in such real time, you know, Digital player tracking, yep. interviewing puck, players on the field, puck tracking, yeah. interviewing yep. uh, players on the field, it's happening, and so many other innovations. Listening to the coaches, yes, yeah. but but the brilliance of the innovation is is really a it's really a a case a case study. Okay, what I think is brilliant about. Or I wouldn't have I wouldn't have accepted the the role. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> These guys have spent two years putting this plan together, being born in the twenty first century for the twenty first century sports experience. Okay, just as you and I. 
sitting in our separate seats at Yankee Stadium would have had to would have would have had a far different time sharing our opinions. This league now enters a an era where daily fantasy sports is entrenched. Sports gambling, legalized sports gambling is now in 10 states, mm-hmm. and there will be more really soon. They, they, they cannot wait to get their piece of this. And what the people at the XFL have done in the, in the, in, in, in the 20 years since the first one didn't work out so great right. was position this in a way where those engagements and that scale and that scope could be exploited, okay, in a fascinating and brilliantly strategic way mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. There are eight franchises, okay? Three on the East Coast, three in the center of the of the United States, two in the West. That leaves giant gaps, giant mm-hmm. spaces in the American map, giant voids, let's say. How do you create the engagement? Through social, mm-hmm. okay? Through daily fantasy sports, through legalized sports betting. When do you do it? Okay? In that one dead zone on the sports calendar that follows the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. All eyes are on you. Okay? Who tells better football stories than Fox and ABC ESPN? Mm-hmm. Who does it better? NBC? Okay. There's room in my heart for all of them. Yep. Okay? But the point is, Two games on each of the weekend days, okay? Six hours per day compared to really watching trees grow, mm-hmm. okay? But America's favorite sport for watching and for betting. And consuming on any device that you want to consume it on there. Correct. Right. Correct. So while... People who want to draw lazy conclusions, one and one equals 11, mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, this team only drew 11,000, okay, or, or ratings are sinking, okay? Understand, okay, that those metrics were fine for the 90s. Yep. They are irrelevant in, in terms of being the totality of, of engagement yep. in the year 2020. Okay, if you go by that, it's the same as saying, you know, the Beatles only drew 457 people to Ed Sullivan Theater. Yeah. I agree. I I think that they, um, you know, there's a lot of measurement now that goes on sentiment and engagement and share of voice. And if you're looking for a football share of voice when there's nothing else going on, I, I would imagine the XFL has done very well. And will continue to do well. Plus, this is certainly not a short play. It's a much longer play. And and the, the fair comparisons to other startups in the first year are, are much more 
relevant than to say, oh, let's compare it to what the NFL does or what the NBA does because it's not a re realistic comparison. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm tremendously supportive and bullish and I hope it works. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, especially in a world of, as we're listening to this, of coronavirus, you know, where people are talking about playing in empty stadiums, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a, a nice rallying point for people, you know, and a bridge, which is great. No so, question. Yeah. And I'm certain that there is there there is plenty of gas in the financial tank for a long term play. Yeah. There are the plans are already beginning for next year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I I encourage uh, the skeptics and I and it's it's we're, we live in a skeptical age. Mm -hmm. I encourage them to reset dials. Okay, because because. The objective, the, the the projection before the season began had been, uh, you know, we'll be we'd be happy with like a million social followers, okay, in by April. We had April before we had a million. We were on our second million before the season began. Hmm. Now we're working on our fourth million, mm -hmm. okay, in terms of in terms of followers, okay, on on Facebook. And Insta and uh, Twitter, mm -hmm. and in terms of innovation, okay, the kickoff, okay, is really drawing attention. Okay, you've got to be able, to, you've got to be willing to fearlessly risk. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the result of a tremendous amount of research and development, a lot of study. And a lot of practical testing. Yep. And you know what? You will see it elsewhere. Some other league with a shield somewhere. In down some the other league yeah. down the road, I have no doubt. Yep. Okay, because it is safer. And what does it do? It encourages returns. How many kickoffs do you want to watch float into the end zone? Okay, for a timeout, a commercial, and a touchback. Yep. Okay, our smart football people have said, hey, why don't we make it almost mandatory that the kicks get returned? Mm -hmm. It's the most exciting play in football. Yep. Right. So the brilliance in terms of football strategy, in terms of customer experience. Okay. And in terms of points of entry. Okay. Whether you can name every starting quarterback. Okay. In the league, you can know what the over-under is, okay? You can know who's favored, okay? And DraftKings and FanDuel will be more than happy to engage with you. In real time. In real time yep. on these terms. The fact that the broadcasters, okay, the fact that Fox and, and ABC ESPN are now showing the changes in the line. As it's going on. Yeah. As the game is going on. Yeah. Suggest something bigger than whether there are 17,000 people in the stadium. Yep, I agree. I agree. So it's a fascinating case. And, and it's at some point when we return to Sloan, okay, mm -hmm. it will be a reason to discuss yep. on a panel. For sure. So fascinating you mentioned. Uh, our last question, which we'd like to ask people, and you've done this really in reinventing yourself several times by choice or by design. 
Um, what advice, especially now with the shrinking traditional media business, and I'm sure many media people have called and said, Frank, how do I get to a league? How do I work for a property? Uh, or for young people, what are the skills that you think have transcended time? And then what do you tell people when they're looking to figure out whether they're starting a new career or getting, you know, being forced into a new career? What's fascinating about the time we live in now compared to the time when I started, okay, which is literally 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. I published my, my first piece in 1970. Here we are in 2020. Where was I going to go as a teenager when there were six hockey teams? I don't know, 16 baseball teams, mm. you know, but, but the, 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 the leagues were so primitive in terms of their footprint. The media was so primitive in terms of the limits of where you could go mm. if you were an aspiring writer or an aspiring broadcaster. Okay, who was going to unseat Marv Albert behind the microphone? Right. No one. <laughs> it's almost still true today. <clears throat> today, okay, because of because of the mobile device, you've got a shot. Streaming, you can create your own voice on Twitch. You know, you can do a million different things. Facebook Live yep. is unlimited. Mm -hmm. Blogosphere unlimited. So. Two things happened to me that can happen to any of you listeners out there. When I was at Associated Press, my stories were appeared in 1,500 newspapers around the world. I was providing a daily resume of my qualifications to work for that media entity. Mm -hmm. At the Daily News, okay, when we were selling a million plus, every morning and two and a half million with your bagel and coffee every Sunday. That was my resume. Right. That was my exposure. Okay. To any and all who may have thought I was worth hiring. Mm -hmm. But again, that was more of a, even though it's obviously projecting, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm sending my material out into the world through the through the methods that were available to me at at the time. Now, you or anybody that we pass in the hallway today can have a voice that is the same size. Mm -hmm. Okay, there 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 are no letters in a tweet mm -hmm. that are that are bigger because of my 50 years in the business than somebody who is sending the, the first tweet in their lives, okay? And similarly, through the aggregation process, a headline in your newsletter, mm -hmm. okay, whether it was on page one or page 51 of, of, the, of the publication from which you, you, co you, you, you aggregated it, yep. same size, yep. same importance, same credibility. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, uh, is, is something that I say with the benefit of 50 years of experience in the industry more credible than someone else? Possibly. But the device creates an in 
an insane democracy. Mm -hmm. Same way. And you can amplify it in various ways that never existed before. Correct. Correct. It's no different, though, from a fan in Section Mm 6 saying the ump missed the call. And, a, and, and someone in Section 66 saying, he got it right. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, we would all sit in our seats, and we would all have opinions. We would keep them to ourselves. Now, every opinion has the same weight, mm-hmm. the same credence, the same value. So, kids, go for it. Yep. Okay? Everything that you put on social media, everything you put on YouTube, everything that you put on Facebook is getting eyeballs. You're creating your own voice. You're creating your own voice. You are packaging your own personality because this is the time when you're able to do it. Frank in 1970 was not able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I knew I wasn't going to get on television. I knew I wasn't going to undo my, un- unseat Marv Albert. All I had was writing. Now, mm-hmm. you can be whatever the unlimited access granted by the digital world provides, provides as a point of entry for you into, into the industry. So don't hesitate. If you have a, if you know your voice, or if you're just trying to find it through repetition, through practice, through experience, it will declare itself. It will make itself known to you. That being said, if you don't learn how to complete a sentence. <laughs> If you don't know how to finish a sentence declaratively, if you don't understand that one sentence should include one thought and one thought only, you are going to limit yourself. Learn the language. Respect the language. It is your ticket to the future, to a great future. So start there fundamentally. Don't think that English or writing or any of the classes that you would take is is just something to be gotten through, okay? It is your platinum card, okay, for a career no matter what it is that you end up pursuing. Amazing. Well, Frank Brown, you've had a Hall of Fame career, but more importantly, you're a Hall of Fame person. Thank you. Um, Lastly... How do people find you? Are you active on social? Where, where can people kind of follow you and, and kind of track along what you're doing? I am at the NHL. That's, that's, that's my handle, at the NHL. Mm-hmm. Uh, likely, I should change it, but yeah. I'm kind of comfortable with it. Yeah. So uh, I, don't, I don't do a lot on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I've, I've, I've kind of done it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, but that doesn't mean that I may not reinvent again and start. And people will find you on LinkedIn. There's other places. Where yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm around. Mm-hmm. I'm around. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and I'm so eager to mentor. I'm so eager to to help people because I know 
I know how uncertain it, it how uncertain people can be. And because I've been there and done that on so many levels, you know, maybe I'll teach someday, maybe mm. I'll maybe I'll lecture someday. I don't know, but um, you know, I, I I'd like people to know what they can do. I'd like them to be able to. Through this, through my absurd and my extreme example, like I can't promise that you're going to get these things that that I've been blessed to experience. Mm. But you never know. You never know. Well, I know that this has been a great conversation, uh, a great journey. Thanks for taking us on the journey and and amazing stories as always. And I'm glad you're able to tell them again. Once again, my guest has been Hall of Famer, longtime professional sports communicator, writer, Frank Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Cusp Show. Thanks so much.